All right, Daniel chapter uh, 8 this morning. We're going to finish this chapter. Be ready for Daniel 9 next week. So if you'll turn to Daniel chapter 8 with me. All righty, Daniel chapter 8. Now, this morning, I want to uh, begin with some context, kind of some summary from last week, but uh, just give us some context as we progress this morning. Uh, first of all, remember that uh, this is written to a Jewish audience, and we, we sort of see that indicated because there is a change in the language. Remember that this is no longer Aramaic. This portion from here to the end of Daniel chapter 12 the conclusion of the book is written in Hebrew. So there's a significant change in language, which indicates to us a change in audience. So whatever we're reading here, whatever we're studying and looking at, has particular significance to Israel. And, and so we have to understand that. Uh, it's a time that is specifically dealing with the time of the Gentile persecution and rule. And so we see that, uh, that from Nebuchadnezzar through uh, that Israel is surrounded by or persecuted by Gentiles. That is sort of, well, they may be today sort of one of the ruling uh, world powers, they're, they're subject to those things. And so we have to be careful to understand that, that this is a time where uh, in history, the Gentiles outside of Israel are ruling and reigning supreme, so to speak, in the world around us. We look at that in, in Daniel chapter 7, we see this coming together, the enemies of God against God's people, Israel included, and the church. And so we have those things happening. We're sort of in that period even now, in my opinion. And then, uh, just by way of context as well, looking at the effect that everything that Daniel sees upon him. So if you'll jump with me to the last verse, uh, last couple of verses in Daniel chapter 8, uh, uh, yeah, the last verse, Daniel 8, verse 27, and I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days. Afterward, I rose up and did the king's business, and I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. The significance of everything that Daniel is witnessing, that he's seeing, and, and in my opinion, clearly understanding is significant. It, it it grieves him to the point of physical illness and fainting. We have to realize that this is a significant event that Daniel witnessed uh, and, and that it's significant enough that it had a big effect on him. Uh, and then anytime that we're going to look at this, uh, these prophecies and those kinds of things, if an interpretation is given in the text, as it is here by the angel Gabriel, he is told specifically to make Daniel understand we can't separate our interpretation from the interpretation that's been given. We have to root it in that context. And so we're going to look at that or we're going to do that this morning. Okay? But that's where we're at. I, I want to um, talk about as we begin here, though, some of the controversies that we need to try and overcome. I said last week that Daniel chapter 8 is one of the most controversial prophetic passages in Scripture, and that is true. The reason that it's, con that it's really 
controversial is, is really threefold as far as I can tell. Number one, this reference to 2,300 days. And people's interpretation of that through, as you see the third point, there this myriad of theories of interpretation. There are dozens upon dozens of variations of interpretation and variations on those themes. Um, each one of them dealing with some of these other points in a real finessed way that's subtly distinct from this other way. And it lends to the confusion. And while I don't want to try and do that, inevitably, if we're looking at what Scripture says, that there is potential for that. And so we need to be Bereans and we need to be very careful about what we're doing and looking at and how we're presenting that. Um, and very also filled with grace as we're having discussions with other people that may interpret something slightly different. In the end, we know what the outcome is. And ultimately, as we're going to conclude with this morning, that's the big picture. That's the important thing. Remember, the point of apocalyptic literature, the, the real reason that God gave it is to encourage or to challenge, not to reveal history as it unfolds before us. So we got to keep that in mind. Uh, and then the other real hard thing within this chapter, I don't think it's that hard, but people, uh, because they have a theory of interpretation, make it so, is this reference to time of the end. So we're going to look at that, uh, but these are some challenges we want to try and overcome today. As we, we built foundation last week, let's talk about what's going on here now. So if we jump right in, uh, I'm just going to throw it out here. Daniel 8 sits squarely, in my opinion, squarely in the classification of fulfilled prophecy. Now, depending on what circle you're running in, that is potentially a very bold statement. Okay, but I think it sits in that realm. Um, I think that this is really what the context, what everything that we have right here in Daniel chapter 8 kind of demands, this is how we interpret it. And it's, I'll just be the first to say, I could be wrong, uh, but I'm also in very good company, so to speak. There, there are scholar after scholar after scholar would agree that this is fulfilled prophecy. And really, as we talked about last week, right, this is most of this chapter is agreed on, even by very liberal scholars, to have been fulfilled. Which is very, very small points of it. This 2300 days in particular, and the reference to the time of the end, those are the two things that people begin to vary on. So, in general, there's a pretty wide uh, co consensus that Daniel chapter 8 is fulfilled prophecy. And so if it is fulfilled, how and where was it fulfilled? When? And so today is going to be, we're going to talk some history. And I'm not a history expert, but hopefully we get enough sense that we can see what's happened here. That we can, we can see what history is provided and see how it squares with what God has very accurately told us is going to happen. Remember, we talked last week about the accuracy and prophecy and the encouragement that that brings to you and I. So uh, I, I'm convinced, and, and as are many other others, that Antiochus Epiphanes fits the profile of the little horn that is described. We're going to get into that here in just a moment. We're going to talk about that little horn. So this would be fulfilled, chapter 8, would be fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes 
life's <clears throat> lifespan. Okay, I would also conclude, and we're going to talk about this, that those 2,300 days are literal days. That there's no need to fit anything into it or to do any gymnastics, so to speak, uh, to make them fit anything else. But these 2,300 days are just literal days. And last, at the end of time references are rooted and best understood within the context that we have within the chapter. And I think that becomes clear as we progress. So this is how we're going to address these, these couple of items that are become controversial. <clears throat> um, we're going to get into, it, into the word here in a minute. Right. These are hard on me because I like to be in the word much more than I feel like we have been as we look at these prophecies and because we're having to look at a lot of history. But I think that that's sort of where we need to be. So. Daniel 8 also, I'm going to put this right out there, Daniel 8 also contains foreshadowing of yet future events. It's, it isn't necessarily future prophecy, but I think it is foreshadowing, and that will become clear as we, as we progress. So the similarities of the little horn described here with the, the horn in Revelation we looked at uh, in Daniel chapter 7, there's some similarities there. But it's an imperfect picture, just as we're studying in Sunday school, these types of Jesus, this foreshadowing of better things to come, the representation, the illustration given isn't perfect. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all of it, but the things leading up to it are, are less than perfect. They're, they're less than a 100% than representation of it. And so... We're going to look at some of those similarities briefly, and then just note that the differences between the two are very important. The differences are important because I, I don't think that they're the same thing, though one may foreshadow another. But I don't think that there is yet prophecy unfulfilled. We don't need it to be here. We find it in the rest of Daniel without it being in Daniel chapter 8. So... Uh, there is some clear foreshadowing of yet future events. All right, let's get into it. In verse 9, we left off in verse 8 last week. So Daniel chapter 9, let's read verse 9 through 12. And out of one of them, you know, just, just remember, right? We've got this ram that's representing the Medo-Persian Empire. And then we have this goat with the single horn, right? Sort of the unicorn horn. And he overcomes the ram. And in the height of his power, the horn is broken off. And out of that comes four others, right? These are, this is Alexander the Great, the description of his empire being divided into the four uh, generals. And we talked about them uh, just a little bit last week. That's what's happening. And then out of that comes this one king. And that's where we're sort of picking up here. Verse 9. And out of one of them came forth a little horn which waxed exceeding great towards the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And an host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, 
and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. Now let's jump over to verse 22 through 25. And this is where Gabriel is giving his interpretation to Daniel. After he's been told to make Daniel understand, this is what he tells him. Now, that being broken, speaking of that horn, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power, not of the same degree as Alexander the Great. And his power... Verse 23, and in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. So in the latter time of the, 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 those, the empires, those four empires, one, of the, one is going to stand up. A king is going to stand up from amongst one of them. And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy wonderfully, shall prosper and practice, and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy, also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and, shall, and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. Now, I'm convinced that this is fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes. He was the king of the Seleucid Empire, which is one of the four uh, divisions of Alexander's kingdom. It's the one that is in the east part. part. It's Palestine. It includes Jerusalem and Media. He conquers Egypt, which is the south. And then he goes toward the pleasant land, right? And And that's really... Uh, a nice way of saying the promise then. This is where Israel is. In the pleasant land. That is the promise and that is Palestine. And so we have this very accurate description in, verses ni- in verse 9. This little horn comes out and it grows and it becomes exceedingly great. And these are the directions of the compass that he comes great in. To the south as he eventually overcomes Egypt and the, the Ptolemies there in Egypt. Uh, toward the east where he is and he's maintaining and gathering even further east of the media of the of, the, of media and in into Jerusalem directly into the pleasant land um, all of this discussion about him exalting himself and and making himself uh, epiphanies is a self-given title. His name is Antiochus. He's Antiochus. It's not even his name. That's his king name. I, I can't remember his... Uh, I almost had it. But he's Antiochus IV. Uh, <clears throat> and he's about the eighth king uh, in the Seleucid Empire. And he gives to himself this title of Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes, the illustrious one, or God manifest. He exalts himself to a position where even the coins that are being minted in his empire talk about the the deity of Antiochus. That's he's exalting himself. He's lifting himself up. This this is what he is doing uh, throughout his empire. Now, Direction of, of expansion. This is how he symbolized in Scripture. So verse 9, as I said, he conquers Egypt. 
he, he goes toward the pleasant land, which is Israel. Ultimately, Israel, in the midst of the conflict between Egypt and the Seleucid Empire, becomes a battlefront. That's, I mean, they're right in the middle. And this is a, a, just an example of an incredibly accurate picture of prophecy. Just the directions of the compass alone are incredibly accurate. The description of what's happening in, in his conquests. Now, jump with me to verse 10, Daniel chapter 8, verse 10. It says, and it waxed great, this horn waxed great, even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Now, don't, don't be confused here. We, we want to define what we're talking about. Jump with me to verse 24. And his power shall be mighty, but not his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. Now, mighty and holy are separate. They're not the same people necessarily, but the holy people, that's God's people. He is persecuting Israel. And that's clear. Now, I want to go back to this reference in verse 10, the host of heaven. Because when we read the host of heaven and we read about <clears throat> the stars and those things that are there and, and him stamping upon them, we interpret that immediately. At least I did. You read this and here it is, a description of either angelic beings or something like that. And so all of a sudden we're looking at in a very different context. But remember, this had significance so much so that Daniel was distraught and even physically ill in response to what he's seeing. And this is a prophecy specifically about the interaction of Israel and the Gentiles. We have to keep it in its context. So if we look at the symbolism that is here within context, we have to interpret it differently. We, ha we have to look at it within that context, within that scope. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. I want to lay a case here that it isn't unprecedented by any means uh, throughout, the, throughout Scripture to look at and for God to use the metaphor, the illustration of stars to represent his people. The first place, uh, well, maybe not the first place, but the first place we want to go to this morning is Genesis chapter 15. And in Genesis chapter 15, we have God instituting a covenant with Abraham and part of the promise Part of the covenant uh, that he is establishing with Abraham is a promise to multiply his descendants. And so let's pick up in Genesis 15, verse 5. And he brought him forth abroad and said, look now toward heaven. Abraham, look at the heavens and the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, so shall thy seed be. So he, Abraham, your descendants He's referring to them using the metaphor as stars to represent the nation of Israel, God's people, the descendants of Abraham. And he does a similar thing in Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, not similar, identical thing with Isaac. And Isaac spake unto Abraham, and his father said, My father, and he said, Here I am. <clears throat> no. It's not Genesis 22, 7. 17, Genesis 22, 17. Excuse me, sorry about that. Genesis chapter 2, verse 27. 
and, and I'm going to begin in verse 15. The angel of the Lord called on Abraham out of heaven the second time, and he said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for thou hast done this thing, and I have not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gates of his enemies. So God is using the metaphor of stars of the heavens, just as he is here in Daniel, to discuss Israel. Now, Daniel chapter 12, turn there with me for a moment. God does this again in Daniel. <clears throat> Slightly different context, but nonetheless, this metaphor is being used and... <clears throat> We have uh, Michael, actually, Michael the archangel is speaking, uh, and, and he says, <clears throat> And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. So, so think about this. I mean, here we are, we're in apocalyptic literature. We're, we're talking and discussing, and I realize there's some context here. We're going to get to that as we get to Daniel chapter 12. But think about it, we have the people of God who are commissioned by Jesus Christ before he ascends into heaven to go in and make disciples. And, and, and here we have Michael the archangel telling us, that listen, that those who are wise are going to shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars of heaven. So here are God's people again who are evangelizing, who are sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with those around them, are compared to, as the spiritual descendants of Abraham, the stars of the heavens. One more reference here, Matthew chapter 13. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 13. Let's look at verse 43. says, then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who has ears to hear, let him hear. So here's Jesus using, I mean, a specific star, the sun, but he's comparing his people, those who are going to follow after him, to that particular star. The point is this, that it isn't unprecedented in Scripture for God to use the illustration of stars or hosts of heaven to illustrate his people. And that's exactly what's happening here. And when we look at it in the historical context that we find in Dan Ch Daniel chapter 8 itself, we find that this is a pretty accurate fulfillment of what really happens. Okay? <clears throat> we see that there are those who follow uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, and those who are yielded to him, and really, if, you, if, if we're discussing the history of Antiochus as it relates to Israel, you can't fail to mention the book of Maccabees, which is an apocryphal book. It's not scripture by any means, but it is a historical book. Not only that, but Josephus writes about it. There are many historians who have written, ancient historians who have written about this period of time. Now, Maccabees is, is specifically the revolt of the nation of Israel in Jerusalem against Antiochus Epiphanes. It is this specific time frame that it covers. Like I said, it is not inspired. It is not scripture. 
but it is historical and it's highly regarded as being pretty accurate. So we can go look and we can see those things and we find that as we look at that, um, that in the midst of this, here's the nation of, of Israel, the people of God. <clears throat> um, verse 10, right? And so he's waxing, he's waxing great, even toward uh, the host of heaven. So he's coming against the nation of Israel. And as we saw in verse 24, he persecutes the holy people. Uh, and it cast down some of the hosts and of the stars of the ground and stamped upon them. So here are some of these uh, faithful Jews who are even giving their life to fend off these attacks and the, the atrocities of Antiochus, the persecutions that they're suffering at his hand. What we find even is that a significant event is when the first, the, the legitimate high priest of that time was put to death, and that becomes a significant uh, thing as we progress. Okay, now. Continuing on, how, what else is symbolized here? Let's look in verse 11 and 12. It says, yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. Now, prince of the host, that seems like something. Uh, but ultimately, the prince, if we're looking at this in the context, that would be the chief priest, right? He's, he's the head spiritual, and that's what happens. He exalts himself, Antiochus exalts himself against the priesthood, ultimately, he sets up these false priesthoods, those who would, be, uh, who, who would be submissive to him and supportive of his Hellenization, uh, his cultural infusion, so to speak, in Jerusalem, uh, and murders the legitimate high priest. And that's, that's what this is describing here. He magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of the sanctuary was cast down. So he forbids sacrifice. The nation of Israel is no longer allowed to bring the daily sacrifices. Now, that's the sin offerings. That's everything that they would have had, all of their celebrations, all those things that God had prescribed. But in addition to that, it's the daily offerings that I, as a personal person, may have brought. If I had sinned and I needed to, do, or, or those things for cleansing, none of that was allowed. No sacrifice was allowed by the Jews in the temple. And not only that, but we have a clear description uh, in, in Maccabees in that historical book that the altar was taken down. It was destroyed so that it couldn't be used any longer. And then in addition, we have this desecration of the temple where Antiochus even goes in and erects an altar to Zeus and commands that there be some sacrifices made to that altar. So this desecration, this defilement of the temple. This is what Daniel sees. This is what he is looking forward to. This is what makes him so concerned. He knows that he is not going to live in it himself, but he knows that there's going to be heavy persecution of his people. That those things that they hold near and dear as part of their worship are at least temporarily going to be stopped. And that the temple that they are looking forward to rebuilding that God has promised would be furnished them by Cyrus is going to be desecrated and defiled. <clears throat> now, 
we read that this horn comes at the later part of the kingdoms. Uh, and so in verse 23 of Daniel chapter 8, the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors were the full, a king of fierce cows, the Seleucid Empire is within, effectively Antiochus is stopped by Rome. That's how close to the end this is. Now, there may be a few straggling events here and there, but Rome is growing in power and beginning to deal with these kingdoms that are left behind by Alexander, and, and Antiochus has direct interaction with Rome at, before the end of his life. This is near the end, and so the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, uh, which we read there in... I put verse 22, but I don't remember why. <laughs> but, but the end of this, right? When the transgressors are come to their full, when something is full, it is complete. It's done. And that's really the reference, the metaphor that's being used here, that the time of this is completed. Now, he, he's powerful. He, he's this powerful king, but his power is derived from another. And there's a couple of different options here. Um, and I'm going to give you both of them. Either he's uh, satanically powered, which I tend to think is less likely, um, but is possible. Could be that this is simply something that God is allowing because he is fulfilling prophecy. This is what's happening here. Just like Nebuchadnezzar was established by God as that hand of correction. In some respects, we have this indignation that is referred to in verse 19. There is some sin happening here. And the reason I say that is because as Antiochus is coming in and he's persecuting Israel, there is a huge number of people. It says uh, here that it was given him, verse 12, and a host was given him against the daily sacrifice. There are those Jews who join Antiochus in the persecution of their fellow Jews. They yield themselves completely to this cultural infusion that he is pushing on them and even go to the point where they're persecuting, and they're part of the troops who were there to destroy and file the temple, to pull down the altar. So there's this indignation that God holds against the nation of Israel. There is a time of correction happening here, and God is, in some respects, using Antiochus to do that. And so I'm more inclined to think this is something that God is doing through Antiochus. Now, if you look at history, Antiochus was kind of slimy. And when he comes to power, there's a lot of manipulation and things that happen here. So I suppose that that is a third option, that it's a reference to the means that he used to come to power. I tend to think that in the context here, God is doing something greater, and that's being unfolded. We're not talking about that specifically, uh, but it continues on that he exalts himself in verse 25. <clears throat> there are some things that we're, we're skipping, right? I mean, he, he destroys wonderfully. He prospers in practice. Um, he uses craft to prosper in his hand. He was an industrious kind of guy, uh, if you look at history. He's going to magnify himself in his heart. I mean, he gives himself God the, the term God manifest. He claimed to be Zeus incarnate. This is a, that's why he gave himself that epitaph, Epiphanes. Um, By peace he shall destroy many, and he's, and shall also stand up against the prince of, of princes. 
but he shall be broken without hand. I mean, he's exalting himself to a position of authority, to, of deity, coming against him and saying, listen, I am something greater than I really am. Worship me. That reference to, to peace and by that peace creating chaos or, or um, by peace he shall, he shall destroy many. And so he's gone over, he's conquered Egypt, and he comes back to Jerusalem to relax, quote unquote. This is where the, that's a reference to his coming back there. Ultimately, he comes back to persecute, and specifically so. But by his peace, by having won his war, his battle, and defeated Egypt, and, and falling back to headquarters, so to speak, at least field headquarters in Jerusalem, that period of peace is heavily persecutory of the Jews. So I have all these symbolism, all these, all these things, and maybe I've done a, hopefully I've done an okay job looking at it, but if you take the time and you look at Antiochus and the things that he's done, there's a lot of this that fits very closely with, with who he was and those kinds of things. Obviously, there's maybe a few things that are up for uh, debate. You know, where was his power derived from? It's not his own. It's derived from another. But like I said, I think the context bears out that there is some, that he is a, an instrument of God's correction. Now, one of the things, so Antiochus is the guy, he's the little horn that rises up as far as I, as far as I'm concerned. That's, I see that being the best interpretation of what's happened here. This is fulfilled in him. Um, as we get into this and we get into some of the controversies, the 2300 days in particular, uh, uh, let's look at that because this is, this portion, as we look at this 2300 days, it's part of the interpretation. It's part of what is being given him. And so uh, Daniel is seeing all of this and says, then I heard one saint speaking with another saint unto him, uh, said, another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, how long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? Okay, so there's a very specific question. How long are we not going to be able to offer sacrifices? And how long will the temple be desecrated? And how long until we overcome our persecutor? That's a very specific question. And a very specific answer is given. And I heard a man's voice between the banks, of, uh, excuse me, verse 14. And he said unto me. So the question is asked of these two angelic hosts that are here watching, these two saints. Uh, I don't know what else to call them besides angels. They're there in the vision, these two people that are watching. Even if they're only part of the vision, they have understanding to be given to Daniel. Okay, so God, by these two, he sees this interaction. And then the answer is interesting. It's not given to the person who's asked the question. The answer is given to Daniel. And he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And so we got 2,300 days that all this stuff is going to happen. And then at the end of 2,300 days, the temple will be cleansed. We'll be able to offer sacrifices again. We'll be able to rededicate it. The altar will be rebuilt. And our persecutors will be gone. And if you go and you start reading things, 
it's where the part of the controversy arises because 2300 and, and you divide it by this and you do it by this and all that's you know half of that's it's this many years because it is seven years and half of that's three and a half years and, and those become significant numbers so to speak as we progress through looking at the weeks of daniel in, in chapter nine but i don't think there's any reason in the context here to interpret these in other than literal days there's nothing in the language that would indicate that there's nothing historically that would indicate that and and, and it's largely unnecessary so <clears throat> the plain natural meaning, if you and I just sat down and we read this, and we didn't have any background or any, any, anybody saying that it might be this or it might be that, we just sat down and read it, what would we think? We would think it's 2,300 days as we understand days. So unless there's some other, some other indication here to you and I, some other cue to interpret it differently, why would we? If we begin to do contortions, quote unquote, to make it fit, we kind of lose the meaning and we conflict the understanding. Uh, this is the interpretation given by these two who are there to give Daniel understanding. We shouldn't mess with it. So let's look at these 2300 days. <clears throat> In 171 BC, that's when Antiochus Epiphanes has the legitimate high priest killed. Like I said, that's a significant date. Now, I don't know what day it is, if we're, but for the sake of our discussion this morning, we don't need to know what day it is. Antiochus Epiphanes dies in 164 BC. And at that point, in the same year, the temple is cleansed. Okay, so, so what was the question? When is this going to happen? When will the temple, 2300 days, and the temple will be cleansed. That's when it was cleansed. That's when it was rededicated. Okay. 171 minus 164 is seven years. 2300 days divided by 365 days, because we want to know how many years it is, is 6.3. Is 6.3 less than seven? Yes. So it fits in that time period. That's all we need to know is that it fits. I don't need to know what day it started on. I don't need to what day it ended on. All I need to know is that it fits within the persecution of Israel, that it fits within the lifespan of Antiochus Epiphanes. And by saying that it starts here at this very specific date when this priest was killed, we, we effectively shortened the period and made it as worst case as we could. We could even go so far as to say, does it fit within the time that Antiochus goes in and desecrates the temple, and I'll just tell you, yes, it does. It still fits. There's no reason to interpret it anything than literal days. Now, the temple being cleansed, that's on the, that, that happened on, and is celebrated and commemorated on the 25, 25th of Kislev. I don't know how to pronounce that for sure, but that's the celebration of Hanukkah. That's what Hanukkah celebrates, is the rededication of the temple after the death of Antiochus Epiphanes and, and the, Maccabee, the Maccabean revolt where they took over Jerusalem again. That's what it celebrates. It's not a particularly significant holiday amongst most Jews. It's 
sort of big in America because it sort of coincides with Christmas. But most Jews, it, it isn't significant enough that they codified it in any way, shape, or form. Right? You know, like Purim, which is a celebration of the deliverance of Israel uh, in, in, under Esther. That's celebrated. And there's specific, these are things that we're going to do to celebrate this. And it's codified. It's written down in the Mishnah and these other, this didn't get there. They didn't do that here. And there's probably reasons they didn't that, that I'll spare you, but that's what Hanukkah celebrates is this very instance, is this very thing, this rededication of the temple. And this 2300 days easily fits within any significant time frame from the cleansing of the temple backwards to either the desecration of the temple or the murder of the high priest. I tend to think the high priest and, and that being a better place to start simply because it's specifically referenced in Daniel chapter 8. So we don't need it to be anything but literal days. We don't have to do contortions and special math. Now, you may see, if you go look at this up and you do some further study yourself, you may see people who take the 2,300 days and they'll divide it by 360 days instead of 365. And the reason they do that is because for whatever, I think there's some spiritual contortions that are happening there. Somehow that's a prophetic year. I've not read anything that convinces me to do anything different. If you do it, it's slightly, instead of 6.301, it's 6.38, it's still within seven years. doesn't matter. But you just might, you might see that. Okay, so we have this 2,300 days. It's a literal 2,300 days. Like I said, there are those who try and take this 2,300 days and they, because it is representative of seven years, and they try and equate that to some future event. And while there may be some foreshadowing of that, I don't think in this case that it is necessary. I don't think that it is a foreshadowing. I don't think the 2,300 days is anything significant other than right here where we're told it was significant. But they, they do try to connect it with future events. The, the, the abomination that makes desolate completely empties the temple and no longer is, is it used, those kinds of things, which is a future event, uh, which we get to in Daniel chapter 9. So that's coming. There's a discussion on that coming soon. Because it's specifically referenced in the 27th verse of Daniel chapter 9. So we have this 2300 days. If we just take the simple meaning of it and we look at it, we see when the temple was cleansed and we go back 2300 days because we are specifically told that when the temple is cleansed, that's the end of all of this. That would get it if we knew the day that the temple was cleansed, and maybe we do what we do. It's the 25th of Kislev. We go back 2,300 days. That's when it started. That's really all we need to know. And that's just from the context. Here it is. At the end of 2,300 days, the temple is cleansed. We don't have to make it anything else. That's part of the controversy, though, so just be aware. Maybe uh, it seems too simple. God kept it simple. I'm just convinced he did. All right. <clears throat> Time of the end. This is another one of the controversies within the chapter. Because when we see time of the end, which we see in verse 17. So actually, let's begin reading in verse 15. Okay. 
And it came to pass when I, Daniel, when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning, then behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uli, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. So first of all, we have to understand that Gabriel, this angel specifically commissioned by whom I believe is, I mean, we don't see anybody, but there's God. He tells Gabriel, make Daniel understand. So what I am convinced of is that the vision that is interpreted here, Daniel fully understood. If he didn't understand, then Gabriel didn't do his job. But he doesn't continue on. He doesn't do anything. And, and as we conclude this morning, there's really one thing. If Daniel didn't know the name Antiochus Epiphanes, which he didn't, if Daniel didn't know that the 25th of Kislev was going to be the end of the, the time the sacrifice was going to happen, which he didn't, those aren't the significant things that Gabriel was trying to get him to understand. Because those aren't the significant things as far as apocalyptic literature is, is concerned. What is its purpose? To encourage and to challenge. So Daniel chapter 17, uh, verse through 19. So here's Gabriel, make him understand, verse 17. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell upon my face. But he said unto me, understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall be the vision. For at the time of the end shall be the vision. Now that's part of the part of the hard part because oh well it's this is obviously going to be in the end times okay move on that's an incorrect interpretation verse 18 now as we he was speaking to me i was in a deep sleep on my face that were in a deep sleep on my face daniel passed out he swooned as a result of all of this this that's happening that's what it means and gabriel touches him and he sets it he stands him up all right hey daniel get up buddy we we i gotta make you understand that's my job Verse 19, and he said, Behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation, for at the time appointed, the end shall be. And people take that at the time point, the end shall be, and, and, and that reference to the time of the end, and they jump to end times. Which is not necessarily what it means. Okay, Turn with me to Habakkuk chapter, chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2, <clears throat> Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, chapter 2. And we're not going to dive into what this prophecy in Habakkuk is all about. That's not, not necessary for what we're looking at this morning. <clears throat> Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3 says, for the vision is yet for an appointed time, that at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. So what does that mean? All it means is that, that that vision, this which is supposed to happen, will happen at the set time, at the appointed time, when God wants it to happen. And there's no difference, whether it's in Habakkuk or here in Daniel, Gabriel is telling Daniel, listen, this is going to happen at the time that it's supposed to happen. And not only that, Daniel, but it's going to end at the time that it's supposed to happen. 
When God says it's done, when it's finished, it will be finished. This Antiochus, this guy that's running around persecuting the Jews, when he's finished, he's finished. And the persecution of Israel, your people, is concluded. The, restitu- the, the, the cleansing and the rededication of the temple can happen. Now, that sounds a little bit more consistent with the purpose of apocalyptic literature to encourage. There's a definite set end. This is, there's really no connection between the little horn here that's come up and represents Antiochus Epiphanes and this persecutor of the nation of Israel who defiles the temple and causes temporarily the sacrifice to cease and this coming Antichrist who causes a more permanent cessation of offerings. There's some foreshadowing of that, but but it's largely unnecessary even because we get to it specifically elsewhere in the book of Daniel. The context really doesn't allow an end times. It's taking those terms out of the context in which they have been written and given to us and, and ascribing them to a theological, one of those myriads of interpretation that are out there. We simply take the text, and here it is. Daniel, for the time of the end, when at the time of the fulfillment, at the end, this vision will be. What you just saw, Daniel, that all of this happens, and then here we told you, how long is this going to last? Well, 2,300 days. At the conclusion of 2,300 days, that's the time of the end. It's fulfilled. It's set. It's determined. Check the box. Move on. There is a foreshadowing, however, and I mentioned this earlier, we're coming back to it, of something yet future. There's a foreshadowing. It isn't a representation of it, it isn't a prophecy of it, but there is a foreshadowing of it. Because, and that foreshadowing is for you and I, it's a shadowy picture for the church. God's people, Israel, are an example people. And they've experienced persecution and they've experienced the faithfulness of God throughout their history. And at the same time, we, the church, as God's people, as the bride of Christ, have this illustration of coming persecution. Remember I said a couple of weeks ago that one of the things that we can expect as the church is persecution. Look at our brothers and sisters in Canada, and they're looking at having it legislated against them. There are times coming, and I'm convinced that there are times coming that are likely to be very much worse than we have now. Now, there's two other expectations. There's the expectation of deliverance, and there's the expectation of victory. But there is this time coming when persecution is going to happen. And it's foreshadowing, what we read here is foreshadowing something much more significant. So let's let's look at a couple of those foreshadowings briefly. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Now this is a description of something yet future that doesn't necessarily interact with the nation of Israel directly 
but it is part of the time of the Gentiles, part of that time where the Gentiles are ruling and reigning and coalescing into that political entity, this unification of the enemies of God. And in verse 27, he shall confirm, and there's a person being discussed here, a very particular character, the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Okay, there's something happening, something being described here that, that people want to take what happens in Antiochus's time and say, well, this is it. This was one of two things. This was either it, or they say everything that happened in Daniel chapter 8 is yet to be fulfilled. That's all future, and they link it to this. And that doesn't work, and, and nor does it have to, to be a consistent picture. Turns me to Daniel chapter 11. <clears throat> An arm shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. But there is something that is going to happen here, and it's clearly referenced. And it's something substantially greater. Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. And from that time, and from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away and the abomination to make it desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. Different number of days. Seems to indicate it's a different number. Different event, rather, excuse me. So people will take that 2,300 days and they'll do some stuff to try and match this uh, 1,290 days. And it just doesn't. You have to either interpret it as not literal days or you have to take half of it and then you're still off by over 100 days and, or uh, they do some other things. But it's not a literal day in any sense. So... Okay, so there's a future event coming. Jesus acknowledged the same future event, and we've looked at this before, but Matthew 24, <clears throat> Matthew 24, verse 15, Jesus is he's talking about the end times. He's talking about apocalyptic events, and he says in Matthew 24, verse 15, When thou therefore shalt see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. We just read the three references. Stand in the holy place, so we know where it's going to be. We know where it's going to happen. It's in the temple, in the holy place. <clears throat> Whoso readeth this, let him understand. That's when you flee. Go to the mountains, he said. That's when you run away. Now, there's, there are things to consider here in regard to audience and all of those things where Jesus is speaking, but there is a future event coming that is this more, much more significant event than Antiochus Epiphanes brought about. There was a temporary cessation of the sacrifices and the offerings. There was a temple defilement that happened, but it only lasted for the 2,300 days that it was supposed to last, according to Daniel, according to the interpretation given by God himself. So we separate these two events, and then we look at the rest of the book of Daniel, and we get into the rest of Scripture, we find that there is this laying out of another event that looks the same. There's a foreshadowing. And just as 
the foreshadowing of everything leading up to Jesus only sort of highlights who Jesus is, but it doesn't really perfectly represent it. So too, this that happens with Antiochus and that defilement of the temple and all those things only similarly represents it. It doesn't show how severe it will be or, or how significant of an event it really is. So we're looking forward to something that's going to happen. God takes time to foreshadow the struggles of the church in the struggles that Israel suffered. Past tense, fulfilled. But it means that you and I, as part of the church, there, there is something there. I realize there's a lot to unpack there, and there's a lot more to probably say. But I'm going to leave that until we start getting into those things in the text itself. Now, last, Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, verse 14. But when ye shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let him that reads understand, then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. Again, Jesus speaking, he's acknowledging that whatever happened with Antiochus Epiphanes is not what was being discussed because Antiochus Epiphanes was 130 years before Jesus. Jesus says there is something happening yet that Daniel the prophet spoke about. So it's not completely fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes. There's only a foreshadowing of it, and we have to look at it in the context that it's, that it's in. Now, so we have, we have Daniel. He has this vision. He sees the interaction of these two kingdoms, Medo-Persia and Greece. We see the, the fall of Alexander the Great symbolized in that breaking off of the horn on the goat. We see his kingdom divided to his four generals in the division and the, the coming up of those four horns. We see this one persecutor of the holy people, Antiochus Epiphanes, rise up out of one of those divisions. And we see this persecution described in Jerusalem. Gentile interaction with Israel. So it's being happening here. But what is the point of apocalyptic literature? Not to reveal history or things that are yet to come. That's not necessarily the point. It's to encourage and to challenge. So let's look at that. That's what we want to close with this morning. Now, I want to introduce it with this because here's Gabriel. I'll tell you, this is the first time in Scripture that an angel is named. And there's only two that are named in Scripture, and they're both named in Daniel. Here's Gabriel. This, and I think this is more significant than people give it play for, and I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill. But every time we encounter Gabriel, he's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about the coming Savior. And he's doing the same here. Okay? He's a messianic messenger. That's what Gabriel does. God told Gabriel his messianic messenger, to make Daniel understand. In Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, because we find Gabriel in the New Testament, he's probably, of all the angels in the Bible, he gets the most play of all the angels in the Bible. There's really only Michael, Gabriel, and the angel of the Lord. Those are the three that are really mentioned. There's references to other things, but we like to make a mountain out of a molehill. So we have a very developed doctrine of angels based on 
almost nothing. <laughs> and I'm not to saying that there's anything, but let's just only infer what Scripture says. Okay, but here in Luke chapter 1, verse 19, Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, right? He's in the temple, and he's doing his priestly duties there. Verse 19, and the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel, that stand in the presence of God, and am sent to speak unto thee to show thee these glad tidings. And he goes on to tell him how, listen, Zechariah, you are going to have a son. And he's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. Verse 16, and many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. There's this description. Listen, there is a coming Messiah, Zechariah, and your son that I've just told you God is going to give you is going to be his forerunner. That one prophesied by Elijah. Or the one who's going to come in the spirit of Elijah, rather, excuse me, and is going to, by Malachi, he's prophesied by Malachi, is coming in the spirit of Elijah, and he's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. So here we have this Gabriel bringing this message of the Messiah to Zechariah, the father of the forerunner. Now, in verse 26, and in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph. Gabriel is the angel who brings the message to the Virgin Mary and says, you will conceive miraculously and bring forth a Savior. This is what Gabriel does. He stands in the presence of God and he brings messianic messages. Turn with me back to Daniel chapter 8. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 8, let's look at verse 22. It says, now that being broken, this is speaking of Antiochus, that being broken, whereas, uh, no, excuse me, yeah. he's broken, whereas four stood up in it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. Um, uh, yeah, I guess it's Antiochus. I don't know why I put verse 22. I apologize. Tell me to verse 25. So I have this description of Antiochus, all of these little these little things, him, him being crafty, his, his intelligence, all of those things being described here because he understands riddles. That's a reference to intelligence. <clears throat> and at the end of verse 25, this is the entire point of everything that Gabriel tells him. This is the entire point. The last half of the last phrase, but he shall be broken without hand. He shall be broken without hand. This guy who is going to rise up against God's holy people and persecute them, he will be destroyed without anyone raising a finger, without anyone lifting a sword. Ultimately, Antiochus dies of a disease. God wipes him out. But you look at the foreshadowing that comes, right? If this is a picture of, of, of the, and, and I think this is one of the clearest foreshadowings of this future Antichrist. Ultimately, here he comes, and he's destroyed without hand. That God, through Jesus Christ, would overcome this Antichrist, that any, I mean, 
We read a lot of what's happening. We see those things in scripture. We see a lot of interactions here on the earth. But ultimately, when God says it's done, it's done. You can't stand against the almighty God. Now, Genesis chapter 3, 15, that proto-evangelium, that first utterance of this promise of the Messiah, this coming, right? We have Satan, the serpent. We know that as we get into Revelation, it's clearly revealed. Here is the serpent, Satan, the devil, and he's manifest in a particular way. We looked at that when we were looking in chapter 7. We'll likely be back to those things. And how is he overcome? Well, he's overcome by the Messiah. He's overcome by the Lamb of God. What did what, what happened? Right? We have in the garden, we have this sin, and we see the result of sin is what? Death, the soul that sin shall die. God told Adam and Eve in the garden, when you sin, when you eat this fruit that I told you not to eat, you will die. That's exactly what happened. As we get into Romans chapter 5, we have this very clear description that by one man, sin entered the world, and death by sin. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. Just as by one man's sin entered, so life, forgiveness, reconciliation with our Creator entered by the man Jesus Christ. Believers are not subject to sin and death any longer. We're not stuck there. We're not left there. The point of this apocalyptic literature is to encourage Daniel, listen, there's a set end. And in the the end, the enemies of God are defeated. For you and I as believers, we have this same truth, this same understanding. If the point of all of this is to say, listen, and he is defeated without hand. You and I can walk away from this with the understanding that the enemies of God are going to be defeated. If Satan, that one who was able to bruise the heel of the son of the woman, temporary victory is ultimately defeated, completely crushed head by the same. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, and I want to close here in Hebrews chapter 2, looking at some encouragement to you and I as believers. Hebrews chapter 2. I want to start in verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also took upon himself likewise the same. And through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. Destroyed without hand. Here's what happens, right? Sin enters the world. God promises to provide a deliverer, a savior, a, a Messiah. What happens? Jesus Christ, God gives his own son, John 3, 16, clothed in the flesh for the purpose of dying on the cross, just as it says here. And through his death overcomes death conquers who the devil that serpent 
Verse 15. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on, not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So here's Jesus Christ, and he is the victor. He is the one who has come in, and through his resurrection, through his shed blood on the cross, redeemed us, covered our sins, forgave us our sins, that through faith in him we might be reconciled to our creator. Died that he might conquer death and the devil and give you and I the victory. Jump with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter X. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15 first. 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15. Let's start in verse 55, because this is the reality for you and I as believers. This is where we abide. And here we are, right? We have this bondage, this fear of death. And we're going to look at that here in just a moment because we need to understand or at least be put into remembrance what that was. But in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is thy victory? In other words, for you and I as believers, there is no sting in death. But for you and I, as Paul would say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. There is no longer fear of that because we know where we are going. We know who has saved us. And the strength of sin, excuse me, grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. But for you and I in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven of sin. When God looks at you and I, he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ upon us because there was an exchange that happened. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He was made him who knew no sin to be sin so that you might be made his righteousness. Right? There is no sin. Where is the sting of death for you and I who are forgiven, who are justified, who are righteous before God? There is none. There's only expectation of the reality of our life hid with Christ. And the strength of sin is the law. The clarification of our depravity, our ver our, the verification of our need. Yet Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ having provided everything necessary for you and I, not only a life that it perfectly fulfilled and satisfied every requirement of the law, but the sacrificial shedding of his blood, being made sin so that we could be made righteous. That is the reality for you and I as believers. That's the expectation that we have is that the enemies who are compiled against us, even Satan himself, is destroyed without hand. Jump with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. I want to read verse 27. As I said, we want to get a, this, this idea, at least put in remembrance what it was like. 
I mean, here it is. We're in bondage to sin because of the sphere of death. That's where we're stuck, right? What do we read here in Hebrews 2? Who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. And in Hebrews 9.27, as it had pointed out to men, once to die, but after that, the judgment. I mean, that's the fear, right? That here we are, we realize our, our need, or whether we, or maybe we don't realize our need, but we have this fear of death because we know that we are not perfect. That conscience that God has put within us to clarify our need for Him, uh, from right, Romans chapter uh, 2, uh, verse 1 and, and verse 15, this idea that this conscience is put within us. This understanding of right and wrong, and my understanding that, yeah, I am wrong. And as a result of that, when I stand before my Creator, whether I acknowledge Him or not, because we're without excuse, He has sufficiently revealed Himself. That I know that I failed, I know that I'm in sin, I know that I haven't measured up, that, that the standard of His righteousness has been fallen far short of. That's a fearful thing. But for you and I as believers, we have that assurance, that confidence, that unwavering, unquestionable certainty that Jesus Christ has paid it in full. That he has taken care of everything that is necessary that he shed his blood on our behalf that we might be made whole, that we might be reconciled, that we might be justified and declared to be sinless by our creator. That's good news. That's the substance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where we abide and that's where we hope and expect in the surety of God's promise. Daniel reaped the benefit of this encouragement. And Gabriel tells him, he says, Daniel, put this up, write this down, but put it away because it's going to be a while before this all comes to happen. Before this comes to pass, it's going to be a while, so put it away. And Daniel's affected by all this. But in the end, the big point, the thing that, that Gabriel is trying to get him to understand, he shall be broken without hand. Without you or I lifting the finger, but by faith in Jesus Christ alone, we are delivered from our enemy, Satan, the, the devil who would keep us in bondage to sin. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word. We thank you, Lord, that as we, as we study it, that we can read it and understand that we can be led into truth by your spirit. And God, I pray that uh, if there's anything here that has been said or taught or, or, or anything, Lord, that needs to be corrected, you would bring it to mind that we might stand firmly upon your word. God, I know that I'm not perfect. I know that I'm fallible. And, and so, Lord, I pray for your spirit to do the things in me and in, and in the hearts of those who are hearing this that needs to happen. Lord, we want to walk in truth. We want to work, walk in the firm assurance of, 
the salvation that we received in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we rejoice in that truth. We rejoice in that hope. And I pray for everyone here that there would be a certainty and a comfort related to that assurance. And God, if there is anyone here who doesn't have that certainty, doesn't have that assurance, that, Lord, there would be a restlessness in their hearts until it is resolved, until, Lord, they have come to a certainty. And, Lord, by your spirit, by your grace, help them realize that that certainty only comes through the sacrifice and faith in Jesus Christ alone. Not by anything that we've done, but by everything that he has finished. We praise you for the covenant that he's instituted by his shed blood. And Lord, as we have opportunity to sing and to, to show adoration and, and adornment for those things that he has done on our behalf, Lord, that is so freely given to us, God, may, it be, be, may it be the offering of our lips, the yielding of our hearts and minds to you. In Jesus' name, we thank you and we give thanks. Amen.